our gracious and loving Father in heaven. We are thankful to you that we've been privileged to have these meetings here this weekend. We thank you now this morning that we can come before you again uh, to worship and to listen to your message, to sing your praise. Uh, We know not how long it may be before uh, the possibilities of worshipping you in this way are limited. We do not know. Dear Lord, we know that your coming is very near. And if your coming is near, then all the final events predicted are even nearer. Dear Lord, we pray, as we've been listening to these messages, and as we shall listen this morning, we pray that we may uh, endeavour in our lives to make our calling and election sure, that we may seek earnestly to bring our lives fully into conformity to your will and to be ready for your coming. So bless us now in this hour this morning uh, and accept our worship and praise. And uh, dear Lord, we pray also for those who cannot be here that you'll bless them, especially those who are sick. And we do remember our brother Paul in particular. And these things we ask and pray in your worthy name of Jesus this morning. Amen. It's wonderful to know there's a God to whom we can pray for our brothers and sisters as we have for Brother Belton. And that God hears our prayers. You know, it is no myth that the effectual fervent prayer of righteous men avail much. There's no myth whatsoever. It is a truth. It is a reality. You'll remember that on Friday evening we discussed the situation in Europe in relationship to Revelation 13. We concentrated more on the papacy rather than on the second beast, the United States of America. But as we have seen over this weekend, the papacy backed by the European nations is going to unite with the United States in the most nefarious plan that the devil has ever devised to destroy the truth of God. To destroy righteousness. To destroy the possibility of men and women receiving the seal of the living God the greatest gift God has for anyone. And you know, it's interesting in Revelation 17, perhaps we'll turn there, you just read a few verses concerning the ten horns. Some people like to reapply the ten horns to this and to that, but I believe it's always a principle of Bible to be consistent in our understanding. And I believe that the ten horns of Revelation 17 refer to the European nations and kingdoms. And we're told here in verse 12 of Revelation 17, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. And then it tells us the sort of unity that there will be in Europe. 
We know from Daniel 2 that there will not be political unity, even though that is the aim of many in the European Union. Just as iron and clay do not mix, neither will these kingdoms mix. But they're going to come together, and they have come together. In what way? We're told in verse 13, and they have one mind. In other words, there's going to be mental consent. There's going to be tremendous cooperation. Now that in itself was an enormous prophecy when it was made. Because the history of the European nations tell us that they have been confrontational one with the other. The number of wars that this country has fought with continental powers. Isn't that so? France was its perpetual enemy for many, many, many years. And the wars it's fought with Germany and Austria, wars with Spain and Portugal, wars uh, <coughs> with uh, Russia in the Crimean War and so forth. Brothers and sisters, uh, the history of Britain is uh, one of great conflict with its so-called neighbours on the continent. I remember, oh, in maybe 12 or more years ago, longer than that, 13 years ago, when my youngest son was a student at New Bowl, we went for a stroll uh, around where the uh, horse guards are. And if you go behind there, you'll see lots of statues of great generals of the 19th century. And uh, we were going and looking and reading, you know, all the wars that they had fought in and uh, received great uh, applaud from their country. And after a while, James turned to me as a young fellow, I suppose about 20 at the time, and he said to me, Dad, I didn't realise we descended from such warlike people. <laughs> and uh, it is true. The history of Europe has not been one of cooperation. It's been one of antagonism. Oh, yes, there have been uh, alliances that have suited several parties when they have been in danger from some other uh, confrontational situations. But they have been just acts of convenience, not of deep friendship, not of deep accord. But here God looked down to the end of time and he said these ten horns incredibly would be of one mind. You know, I was reminded of this uh, during the Gulf War in 1991 because as I look back over the history of Europe, I couldn't remember a single major war where there'd been any accord whatsoever between all the nations of Europe. Were they in agreement in the Vietnam War? No. The Eastern Bloc was supporting North Vietnam, the Western Bloc, South Vietnam. The same in the Korean War. And of course, we don't have to mention the World Wars. They go without saying the Franco-Prussian Wars and all these wars, even the Boer War, down in South Africa, there was no accord in Europe. The Germans and the Dutch were, of course, on the side of the Boers and the British and some others on the uh, uh, other side. But, you know, it was interesting in the Gulf War 
Although there were lots of disagreements on how it should be pursued and how the problem should be settled, there wasn't one nation in Europe for the first time I could discover in history who didn't believe that the Iraqis had to get out of Kuwait. There was different degrees of how it should happen. But this was something, just a little uh, uh, signal, that there was an agreement of the mind in Europe, as had been prophesied, despite the fact if we'd lived in any other era of Europe, it would be hard to, know, to believe that there'd ever be a time when the nations of Europe would be uh, of one accord on any particular issue. And then it goes on to say, they have one mind, but what is the purpose of that one mind for the European nations? The tragedy is, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake, that is the purpose of the pseudo-unity we see in the European Union today. Again, I emphasize the Vatican on its own is absolutely impotent and powerless. But you notice how in Revelation 13, it is the second beast, the United States, that gives its power to the beast. Here it is the European nations that give its power to the beast. And today we have an alliance called the North American Treaty Organization, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is a combination of the United States and Canada on the western side of the Atlantic, and then the, most of the nations of Europe on the eastern side of the Atlantic. And I don't have to tell you that it has played a very prominent part in uh, recent events in this continent. A very strange thing happened with NATO, and it happened exactly two years ago, July 1997. Uh, NATO had consisted of 16 nations. But you'll recall at that time another three nations were added to NATO at a cost of 61 billion US dollars. Didn't come cheaply. Poland, a Roman Catholic nation. The Czech Republic, a Roman Catholic nation. And Hungary, a Roman Catholic nation, joined NATO. I've specifically stated the predominant religions of those three nations for it is not irrelevant to the fact that they were selected. Romania, Bulgaria were desperate to be selected, but they are not predominantly Roman Catholic nations. Why did NATO enlarge itself in 1997. I want you who have been students of the history of Europe to think back on the various different treaty organizations over the centuries. You know, the Triple Alliance, the Entente Cordiale, you know the, 
the sorts of alliances that Europe went into over the years to try and protect one group of nations against a, another group of nations. Whenever there was a threat, those alliances were maintained. But when the threat was over, the alliances dissipated. Now, why was the North Atlantic Treaty Organization formed? It was formed in the year 1949. At that time, the Soviet Union, with the support of the Eastern European bloc, was a mighty force in the world. It was a tremendous nuclear power. And there was a genuine fear, I believe, in the hearts of many Western Europeans that they were in great peril from what could transpire if there was ever to be a conflict that came from the Eastern nations. The United States and Canada were well aware of that conflict. They were well aware that there needed to be some sort of alliance that would oppose the threat of the Soviet Union. And it was no fictitious threat. But you know, I'm sure you do, that it had taken an enormous change in American policy to get itself involved in Europe. In 1824, when President Monroe enunciated the Monroe Doctrine, the Americans were fed up with the conflicts in this continent, on this continent. They were tired of being drawn into those conflicts. And they said, leave the Europeans to fight their own fights. America then adopted a more or less isolationist policy with a little interest in the other parts of the Americas. And that policy was maintained for many, many years. Wars came, like the Crimean War, the Americans ignored it, the Franco-Prussian War. And even when the First World War commenced, absolutely no interest in interfering, except behind the scenes, America keeps sending armaments across, as you know. And eventually the Germans were fed up because they were being sent upon passenger ships. And America was imperiling the lives because they were warned by the Germans. The Germans, at least to their credit, did not go and sink the first one they knew that had all this armaments that was secretly going to Britain. The passengers knew nothing of what was in the hold of the ship. And eventually, the Germans believed, rightly or wrongly, enough was enough. We have warned the Americans, and then the poor old passengers on the Lusitania paid the price, and down it went. That was the excuse that America needed in 1917 to enter the last stages of the First World War. It was the first breach in the Monroe Doctrine. But as soon as the war was over, back to the Monroe Doctrine they went, right back again. America founded the League of Nations, but the Congress refused to permit President Woodrow Wilson to 
seat America in the League of Nations. So it was never part of the League of Nations because it had now withdrawn again to its isolationism. And yet the prophecy here does not testify in Re Revelation 13 of an isolationist America. This is one that gets itself involved in Europe once more through giving power to the papacy, and not just in Europe alone, but in all the world. God sees so accurately, even though when great controversy was written, it must have seemed like utter nonsense to those who did not believe the word of God to suggest that America was going to get involved worldwide in affairs when it had taken such a positive and determined uh, attitude that it would remain an isolationist nation. But God saw the events that were to transpire in the 20th century. And uh, on December 7 or 8, depending on which side of the date line you happen to be, in Australia it was December 8, in America it was December 7, 1941 Pearl Harbor was bombed. Now, there is ample evidence that the United States President, Franklin D. Roosevelt, knew that this attack was imminent. They had decoded the Japanese code, but he took no steps to meet those planes on the way. And you know the result. It was all that President Roosevelt needed to declare war in the Second World War. Well, it was a blessing in many senses for Australia, for it's very likely that we would have been occupied by the Japanese forces if it had not been for the support that was given in defence by the Americans. Because how could Australia, with a, such a, an enormous coastline, how could we protect our shores? We could protect little parts of it. And I was just a boy, of course, in the war. And, uh, but I remember Pearl Harbor. And I remember the nightmares I had as a little boy. Of the, they always, in my nightmares, the Japanese wore red uniforms. I don't know why. But in my nightmares, they did. And they always, as soon as they came to you, they chopped everyone's head off. And I could, I, I'd wake up and my head was about to roll <laughs> from one of the Japanese swords, you see. You know, it's terrible what war does. You know, I was only six in 1939 when the Second World War commenced. And I didn't know anything about Japanese to any extent, except that, uh, you know, the little stories you heard of uh, how the Japanese dressed and the Jap Chinese and the African, you know, those sort of stories. But by the time that war was nearly over, I thought that they were halfway between uh, gorillas and humans. That's how they were depicted, the propaganda. Ne I never dreamed that they were such gracious uh, and uh, lovely people, the Japanese, because hate was put in by the Australian government. We were terrified by these uh, Japanese. Uh, and uh, I'll never forget, Colin and I, one day, just happened to be standing on Broadmeadow Railway Station. It's one of the junctions... Um, of the city we were born in, in Newcastle in Australia. And to our absolute amazement, in came a train 
full of Japanese prisoners of war. Of course, it was all locked, but we looked at them. We could see that they looked, we were sure they looked like, to our shock, like human beings. And they looked so meek and mild sitting there. Of course, they couldn't do very much. They were prisoners of war. And we got a completely different opinion of what uh, these were like. And then I remember the day two Japanese submarines came into our harbour. Midget Japanese. They, they couldn't have uh, overcome. See, Newcastle was the main industrial city of Australia. It was a very perilous city to be in. And they sent a few shells into the city. They were soon, of course, uh, destroyed. And the poor men on the uh, submarines were killed. But it was enough to have the effect of sending terror. Because we'd been told that our harbour was well protected, but they were so small. When uh, ships came into the harbour and they had to open the, the gates, these had sneaked in behind them laid around till night time, and then they shot. Not a single soul was killed. few uh, windows of the shops in the main shopping centre were broken and so forth. The damage was minimal, except up here. The damage was terrible <laughs> in our morale to think that we were so close, uh, uh, that they were so close. But brothers and sisters, along came the Americans and... To our gratitude, they helped us. We were bombed very severely in the north by the Japanese, but never was any force landed. And since then, the Monroe Doctrine is extinct. America has more and more placed its tentacles because of its unsurpassed power and influence around the entire world a world. My brother and I had the privilege of preaching in Macedonia exactly one year ago, July last year. We were in the capital city, Skopje, and we had a wonderful time. But on the Sabbath day, two men who had not been attending the meetings arrived. One was Stoyan and the other was Goran. Doyen could speak English, Goran could not. They were not Macedonians, they were Serbians. And they had heard of the meetings in Macedonia. They were sincere Seventh-day Adventists. Doyen was the uh, senior elder of the little church of about 30 members in the city where they lived, the city of Verona, city of about 70,000 people. And uh, they had come to hear the message. And when they heard the messages... Uh, Goran's wife was Macedonian so he knew the Macedonian language when they heard the messages they came to Colin and me at the conclusion of the service and said can you not come to Serbia next Sabbath and preach well I said maybe one of us can but we've got messages here to give and so it was decided that I would go there on the Sabbath and Colin would go on the Monday and I would take charge of the meetings back in Macedonia. If we could get a visa. Now, that was a problem. The, Yugos, the Serbians are not very pleased with the Macedonians seceding from the Yugoslav um, nation. 
So we went to the uh, Serbian or Yugoslav, uh, it's only a rump of Yugoslavia, of course, uh, embassy. And the consul came out to see us. He said, you have to get a visa in your homeland. Well, we said we had no idea we were going to go to uh, Serbia uh, when we left Australia. And uh, we have been invited just for one day to give a meeting. Well, he, was, he thought about it. He said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you a transit visa for someone that's just travelling through. And it will last three days. I said, that's three days more than enough. And so across I went. I went to this city third, uh, eight miles from the Kosovo border, very close. <clears throat> we passed, even so we were outside of Kosovo, we passed towns that were almost entirely uh, Albanian. And uh, I had a wonderful time. So did Colin there. Wonderful Seventh-day Adventists there in that city. But lunchtime came, Brother Stoyan and his wife had kindly invited me home to lunch. But they had another guest there. It was an interesting. He was an Albanian Muslim, and they were friends. You know, don't think that all the Serbs and the Albanians hate one another. Because here I dine at their request with an Albanian Muslim. And naturally, the conversation, through interpretation of course, got around to Serbia, Serbians versus the Albanians. And this Albanian man asked me a question. He said, why do you think we Albanians and the Serbs have so much conflict between us? He said, we lived quite comfortably with one another for many years, but now it has changed. I said, you're a Muslim and you may not understand my reasoning, but I said, the Bible is very plain that at the end of time, two nations are going to unite in order to enforce the tenets of the Roman Catholic faith. Now, I said there's a problem about the Serbs and there's a problem about the Albanians. The Serbs are Eastern Orthodox and the Albanians are Muslims. And the whole purpose of the papacy is to impact its influence over all the nations of Europe. And it serves the purpose of the papacy very, very well to have the Serbs and the Albanians decimating, impoverishing one another, weakening, so that their power can be stronger. And I said, you will find that behind all this, there is the workings of the Vatican. I still see him sitting at this end of the table and he thought for a moment. And then he said, you know, I think what your Bible says is probably right. That's what he said. It's probably right. We conducted a wedding in Macedonia, an Australian uh, citizen who had been born in Macedonia 
and came to Australia when he was nine, went back to get his bride from Macedonia, and he invited Colin and myself to conduct the wedding there in the church in Skopje, which was a privilege. But I was amazed to find where he held the wedding reception. It was in the city where his brother lived, and it was two kilometres, less than a mile and a half, from the border with Kosovo. We just stood there. We saw those hills rising from the border. We could easily see Kosovo. We're only a kilometer, uh, two kilometres away, and it rose in hills, as you've seen. And, and this was the... When we saw these uh, people leaving and fleeing from Kosovo, some of them came over those very hills into Macedonia. And, and my mind's eye could picture them coming over. It's been a terrible tragedy, brothers and sisters, not just for the Albanians, but for the Serbs. You know, I feel very sorry for the Balkan people. That little, tiny peninsula in southeast Europe, bedeviled by so many races, so many religions, all trying to maintain their sovereignty, maintain their little place under the sun for centuries, not just in the 20th century. It's always been an unstable area of Europe. Too many conflicting nations, too many conflicting religions all together. You know, you've got the Greeks, you've got the Bulgarians, you've got the Macedonians, the Croatians, the Slovenians, you've got the Bosnians. The Montenegrins, you've got the Albanians, all these people, and you've got Islamic people, you have Eastern Orthodox people, Roman Catholic people in these areas. And the history is an appalling history of discontent, of slaughter, of everything that leads to discomfort. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, enmity against the Serbs, and I certainly, for one, would not want to represent the Serbs as being pure and holy in what has happened. They have not been by any means. But, my dear brothers and sisters, we have to remember that there have been serious faults on both sides. Let us not forget it. But even more importantly, let us not forget that Christ died for the Serbs and he died for the Albanians. They are his children. And the average Serb and the average Albanian has suffered so much without being themselves specifically implicated in the acts of terror and violence. Remember that the Serbs, when they first came into history, were living around the Black Sea. For some reason or other, they came across to the uh, northwestern part of the uh, Balkan Peninsula. That wasn't very much appreciated by the Byzantine Empire that was ruling at that time. But in the end, they came to some sort of a compromise. This was the edge of the empire, and if only the Serbs would do something to protect the interests of the Byzantine Empire in their little edge of the empire, the uh, Byzantine said, they were welcome to stay. And so they established themselves there. 
A hundred years later, the Bulgarians came to the western, uh, to the eastern part of that peninsula. They weren't very much appreciated by the Greeks or by the other dwellers that were naturally in that area. And then conflict commenced. Year in, year out, century in, century out, as these nations all fought for a little piece of land and livelihood. And of course, then entered the, into the equation the fierce Ottoman Empire. You know the Turks did not come from Turkey. In the time of Christ, the Greeks lived in Turkey. They were Greek. It was a Greek place. Ephesus was Greek. Pergamos, all those cities were Greek. There were no Turks there at all. And the only major foreign group there were the Celts, you know, the, the cousins of the, the, the Scots and the Irish and the Welsh. In Galatia, the book of Galatians was written to the Celtic people who'd conquered that part of what is now Turkey. But the Turks didn't start to make any inroads into Turkey, as it's now called, until about the 7th century AD. The Turks come from north of China in Turkestan, in Siberia. And that's where those fierce tribes were, and fierce they were. Under Tamburlaine the Great, they destroyed the whole of western China. Tamburlaine's policy was to kill every human, every animal, and destroy every tree. You know, the Gobi Desert wasn't the Gobi Desert until along came Tamburlaine the Great. It wasn't the most, um, the, the most productive soil, but it wasn't the Gobi Desert. But you destroy all life in an area that does not have a lot of rainfall and it soon becomes a desert. He even was able to march to Baghdad and even to the gates of Cairo. He was a mighty conqueror. And along the way, he left people, these Turks. And you see that in some of the former Soviet states. Azerbaijan, a Turkish people. Turkmenistan, you can see what people they are. Uzbekistan and uh, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, those people. Turkish, and then, of course, you have the Ottoman Empire. <clears throat> and uh, a very, very significant battle was fought the 20th of June, 1389, between the Serbs and the Turks. The Serbs were fighting for their very existence. The Turks had come as conquerors. And make no mistake, the Turks are some of the fiercest fighters in the world. They are not cowards, the Turkish. And they fought, and they fought that battle. The blood just flowed on the field. The sultan, the Ottoman sultan, was killed in the battle. The Serbian king was killed in the battle. And most of each army was destroyed. So fierce was that battle. But in the end, just marginally, success went to the Turkish army. That battle was fought in Kosovo, the Battle of Kosovo. That is the reason, despite the fact that 90% of the population of that province is Albanian, 
the Serbs are determined never to yield, for there their lifeblood was destroyed in that battle of all battles with the Turks. It is sacred to them. They hold that day, even though it was a day of, feet, of defeat, as a day of national honour. A day of national honour. You know, there must be something about the Turks to have a day when you were defeated as your day of national honour. You know, Australia and New Zealand have the same. Those of you who are British know that uh, Winston Churchill was what we would call in Australia the Minister for the Navy in the First World War. And he concocted a very ill-conceived plan to control the Dardanelles, for Turkey was on the side of Germany. And the vast majority of the troops that he sent were Australian and New Zealand troops to undertake. There were some British troops too, to Gallipoli to that little peninsula. But the Turks were already aware that they were coming. Their intelligence had learned the plans of the Allied attack. Gallipoli was a beach with great cliffs and the Turks were well entrenched on the top of those cliffs. Here you had fierce soldiers entrenched on the top of those cliffs and for months the Australian and New Zealand forces with great loss of life and, and the British that were there with them, tremendous loss of life, tried to claim those cliffs, eventually unsuccessfully. It was an unequal battle. Their supplies were difficult to get. Their position on the beach was so inferior to being up on the top of the cliffs. Furthermore, the only joy that came out of that was the successful evacuation from Gallipoli where the Turks were beguiled into believing that nothing was happening, they were still there they even had the guns with ropes tied to the triggers and kept pulling them as they were going out to sea so that there was still ammunition flying into the Greek positions, into the uh, Turkish positions and uh, very few casualties in the retreat but incredibly, the day that Australia and New Zealand hold as the day in which they remember the war, heroes, and dead, is the 25th day of April, which was the day in 1915 that the Gallipoli campaign was commenced. And so, just as you have on November 11, Armistice Day, uh, Australia has what is called ANZAC Day, Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. That's what ANZAC stands for. And I thought, isn't it incredible? The Serbs remember with great joy their defeat by the Turks and the Australians and New Zealanders the same, as if it was a matter of great pride. There must be something pretty good about even losing to the Turks. Furthermore, there are religious sites of the Eastern Orthodox Church in Kosovo. That is why they're so stubborn to give up that territory. And you'll remember that Tito... Uh, look, the more I've seen in Yugoslavia since the uh, Second World War, 
and since the death of Tito, the more I think he must have been a man of absolute genius to keep those warring six nations together as a single nation as long as he did. It was an act of genius. He himself was a Croatian. But Tito's demise was to be the end of the Yugoslav Federation. Now we have five nations. And there's not much love between the two that remain, the little Montenegro and Serbia, that are now still foolishly called Yugoslavia. Tito had more brains than Milosevic. Tito gave internal autonomy to the province of Kosovo. He allowed them to use the Albanian language as freely as they wished and make internal decisions. That was an act of common sense. But in 1989, as you know, Slobodan, fancy anyone calling their child Slobodan. <laughs> but mum and dad, Milosevic, <coughs> Milosevic called their little boy Slobodan. He did not show the same common sense and he took away that autonomy. Little by little, the Albanians' grief and anger grew until the Kosovo Liberation Army, a guerrilla force, was formed. And they carried out atrocities, let us not forget that, against the Serbian minority. Now, there was... Of course, as I've said, that level of provocation, some level of provocation, but they commenced it. Naturally, the Serbs, in great numbers from the other provinces, came to help the 10% who were being massacred by the KLA. It was then that the Western nations started to take an interest in what was happening. Because there were atrocities, counter-atrocities, by the Serbians against innocent Albanians, just as the KLA had been killing off innocent Serbians. But have you ever stopped to think, why did NATO do what it did? Is... Serbia, the only country that has persecuted its ethnic minorities? Come over to near Australia, to East Timor. It may not be big news here. But it's big news in Portugal because that used to be a Portuguese colony. And the people in Portugal, where we were, were well aware of what's happening in East Timor, where the Indonesians are persecuting that ethnic minority that they took by force from the Portuguese about 20 or more years ago. But has NATO bothered to go there and bomb and bomb and bomb Indonesia? be a pretty big job, you know, over 200 million Indonesians. It's no tiny country. It's the fifth largest nation on earth as far as population is concerned. It's done absolutely nothing. What about the Kurd minorities in Turkey and in Iraq and in uh, 
in Syria and in Iran. They've all been persecuted. Has NATO gone and bombed all them, all those nations, because they have been mistreating their minorities? There are loads and loads of countries. Nigeria mistreated the Igbo uh, people. Did uh, NATO get involved? You see, we have to understand why, oh why, did NATO become involved? And in, a, in, a, in any case, why is NATO still there? Why is it still there? The threat is gone. Everybody, nobody in their right mind now thinks that the, the Eastern Bloc is a credible threat against the West. Russia is alone. It is weak. Comparatively, it could not mount a successful attack upon the West. And the history, as I said, of treaties is that when the threat is gone, the treaty is placed aside. But that has not happened. It's been increased at a time when there is no uh, threat. You know, I was very interested to read the comments of the newspapers two years ago when that occurred. And they were all favourable to the increase. I was amazed at the... I mustn't have bought the... Oh, maybe it's here. I was amazed at the comments of the newspapers and magazines at the time. The editors showed no insights whatsoever. You know, I, I've uh, quoted the Daily Telegraph, the London Daily Telegraph, a number of times, but I've never read such abject nonsense as I read on the 10th of July, 1997, two years ago. It was written by Christopher Lockwood, the diplomatic editor of the London Times. Just listen to this statement. There's safety in number, even when the threat is past. That was his comment. Even worse was the US News and World Report, July 14. Now, that is a magazine like Time and Newsweek. In fact, I believe it's a far better magazine than either. I don't know why it isn't the one that's distributed around the world. But when I'm in America, I prefer to read the US News and World Report, but not on this issue. Just listen. The expansion of NATO will lead to a democratic, peaceful and undivided Europe for the first time in all history. Peaceful? Would he write that today, two years later, when there's been this terrible conflict in Serbia? The Toronto, Canada star. The consequences of NATO expansion would be to make backsliding into tyranny all the more unthinkable. Well, we know prophecy. We're not going to be spared backsliding into tyranny. We're going to have the worst tyranny that has ever been brought before the earth. These men who are not students of the Bible, they speak from the depth of their ignorance. The International Herald Tribune, July 10, 1997. NATO took an important step this week toward promoting stability and democracy. 
$61 billion. Why? When the threat is passed, even the diplomatic editor admitted that. No threat left, but he said somehow there's safety in numbers. My dear brothers and sisters, there is one reason, and that reason came out this year. We know that except for a few symbolic soldiers, the Vatican has no army, it has no air force, it has no navy. But make no mistake, it has NATO. The reason that this force is so powerful, the reason it is growing, is because it serves the Vatican's purposes. And so don't believe for one moment that this terrible bombing of Serbia was undertaken in the face of fierce opposition from the Vatican. Quite the reverse. Quite the reverse. Furthermore, when they held their 50th celebrations of the formation of NATO, it was stated that they now had to have a new mission. Obviously, it wasn't to hold back the tide of communism. No longer in Europe. And they said the new mission of NATO is to police the whole of the Northern Hemisphere. To police. Police for who? To police for whose objects? We know whose objects. Most of us here have read Malachi Martin's book, The Keys of This Blood. He left us without any doubt what the aim of the papacy is. Let's see the hands of those who've read that book. I said most. I, I'm, I'm a little on the... Uh, you know, Malachi Martin made some very astute observations. They weren't just observations. He worked as a professor in the Pontifical College University in Rome for many years. He was a great friend of that Jesuit Cardinal, Cardinal Bay, and he knew the thinking there of the papacy. And so Malachi Martin was in a very, very good position in order to enforce or to understand what is in the mind of the papacy. His very first words in that book, willing or not, ready or not, we are all involved in an all-out, no-holds-barred, three-way global competition. Most of us are not competitors, however. We are the stakes. And then he goes on to say that there, this was written at the time of communism, there are three powers vying for world control. The United States and Western democracies, communism and the Vatican. And he leaves no doubt which one is going to win. And the Bible leaves no doubt that Malachi Martin may be a Roman Catholic priest, but he's not wrong with everything. And he certainly wasn't wrong in this. The competition is all out because now it has started. There is no way it can be reversed or called off. 
no holds barred because once the competition has been decided, the world and all that's in it, now listen, our way of life as individuals and as citizens of the nations, our educational systems and our religious and cultures, even the badges of our national identity. I've spoken something about sovereignty before, which most of us have always taken for granted. All will have been powerfully and radically altered forever. No one can be exempted from its effect. No sector of our lives will remain untouched. And then he goes on to say that the Vatican is well placed. He tells us of the groups that are working on the destabilization. There's one that's looking at the Anglicans and the Eastern Orthodox. They are the pushovers in the idea of the Vatican. They're not far wrong, are they? So they, they will be uh, very easy. There's another one looking at the pagans, another one looking at Islam, and one that is looking at the more evangelical sects. And he actually named Seventh-day Adventists amongst those, those sects in the book. My dear brothers and sisters, we are not in any doubt, for we have the Bible. It's not just Malachi Martin's speculation, insightful as it is on the secular level. We have the Holy Word of God, which is telling us that uh, which is transpiring. When the Pope sent out his letters, we must be very well aware that that letter was written with great care and great understanding. I was appalled as I saw Pope John Paul II quote his predecessor, not his immediate predecessor, but one of his predecessors, uh, Pope Leo XIII. That man had no love for religious liberty, and yet this is what Pope Paul II said, that Pope Leo XIII in his encyclical Rerum Novarum spoke of Sunday rest as a worker's right with the, which the state must guarantee. Did you notice? The state must guarantee. And yet, Protestants, even Seventh-day Adventists, saw no harm in that statement, which the state must guarantee. Pope Leo XIII was one of the greatest opposer, opposers of religious liberty. He had written an encyclical on religious liberty, when, which he said was the most diabolical of Protestant doctrines, religious liberty. And yet the present Pope is quoting him as a virtuous Pope who said, well, we'll have Sunday laws guaranteed by the state, just so the workers can have a day of rest. And uh, John Paul II said, yes, the church in the past has sometimes uh, enacted Sunday laws so that the servants and the workers could have a little break from their work. 
No mention of the stake. No mention of the sword. No mention of rifles. The number of converts that the Catholics have has uh, achieved by putting a rifle at someone's head. I tell you, if you want to have an instant conversion of the people of London, you just take them one at a time, put a rifle to their head, the conversions would be overwhelming. <laughs> and the Catholics found that out. That's how the Philippines, where Jason went to, that's how they converted the Filipinos. It was with their eyes looking down the barrel of a gun. It was amazing how many became instant Christians. My dear brothers and sisters, it's the greatest evangelistic tool that you will ever find. But there's no conversion in it. No conversion in it. We are living in the time when the papacy is doing all that it can to achieve the aim. It has made Pope Paul, John Paul II the year 2000 as some sort of year where there's going to be un unity. And all I can say is that the average Protestant just goes along with it. You know, the Australian, which is one of Rupert Murdoch's newspapers in Australia, wrote an editorial on that foolish papal bull concerning the matter of the introduction of indulgences during the so-called Holy Year from the 25th day of December this year to the 6th of January 2001 in which indulgences will be given for certain duties and certain uh, kindly deeds which are done. And the people will be spared time in purgatory. That must be a great comfort to them. But the truth is that this editorial said it is so good, so good, that the Pope is holding up high standards to go and visit the sick. One way in which, by the way, you can obtain an indulgence if you stop smoking. Pretty hard on me. I can't stop smoking. You have to start before you can stop. Isn't that right? Yes. And when I read this, I said at least there may be some good to the individual until I read on. There will be an indulgence for anyone who stops smoking for one day. And if you give up alcohol for one day, that will also bring an indulgence. Brothers and sisters, the evil of the Roman Catholic dogma. You know, the Pope must think that the mighty God of heaven, the creator of all, is standing around in heaven saying, I wonder what the Pope will decide I should do next, who I should give uh, mercy to and who I should not give mercy uh, please, John Paul II, will you please tell me? And whatever you say, of course, I will do. But don't leave me in suspense. When can I do it? That's what the Pope must think. The moment he says that there is an indulgence, he believes that God says, oh, good, oh, I'll do what John Paul has just told me to do. I'll give an indulgence. You know, it is the man of sin. It is the son of perdition. And we should not be taking sides in these matters of war. That is not the work of the Christian. War is of the devil. 
It is of the devil. I'm not in favour of what the Albanians have done to the Serbs. And you saw their hate when they went back. They didn't do a very kindly thing to the Serbs' home. They started to burn all the Serbs' home. They have killed some of the Serbs. What they detested in themselves, for themselves, they're able to mete out to their enemies. What a tragedy. Sure, there must be virtuous Serbs. I met them. And no doubt there are virtuous Albanians too, up to the light that they have. But it's our duty to take the message, not to get ourselves involved on this side of the war or that side of the war. There's sin on both sides, and there are innocent victims on both sides too. Make no mistake about that. My dear brothers and sisters, as we see these matters arising in the world, it is time for us to remember a little of the history of these countries. I've written a much fuller history of it for an article in Our Firm Foundation, and uh, I think you'll find it uh, quite interesting because I find that even many people in Europe don't know a great deal about the history, uh, the, the longer history of the Balkans. It is a very sad and very sorry story. You know, it's only 1912 since the Ottomans were finally cast out of Serbia. They were there for half a millennium, occupying, persecuting, killing, sometimes doing some good things. I saw some lovely Turkish buildings in Varanja, for example. They had left some good things behind as well. Let's not forget that. But brothers and sisters, we are Seventh-day Adventists. We're different. We are not people who take sides in godless conflicts. We are people of peace. We are people of a God who hates war and loves the love of the faith and faith of the saints. It is our duty to take God's message to these people, to call them out of Babylon, to call them to the wonderful worship of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And I'm praying that we have a group at Gaisley, and I believe we do, who do not think so much in terms of ethnicity as of our love for Jesus, which is our common nationality. There is no greater nationality than being a Christian. That is our nationality. Yes, we're loyal to our nations. We're not going, Adventists should be in matters pertaining to all secular matters unrelated to their faith, should be obedient. We may not like the tax system, but we pay our tax and render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We may not like many of the regulations, like the one where we wanted to get our, a tree that we felt was endangering our house uh, taken down and the, the local council refused. They won't pay the bill if it falls on our house, I can assure you. Uh, they just want trees everywhere. And uh, you're not able even to take down a, a tree in your yard. But, but we're Christians. It's not against our religious convictions and we can pray to God that that tree will never uh, fall over and that God will protect us. 
So, my dear brothers and sisters, when I say that we are citizens of heaven or of Christ and his kingdom, I am not to imply that we are disloyal or traitorous or treasonous to our individual nations. We must not be. But our first and only loyalty that is unconditional is to God. That's the only one. And our true fellow citizens are those who are part of the family of God. Christ came into the world for every nation on earth. And he loves every equally. And I believe it's only those who have a love for those of all races and all nations who can possibly take the three angels' message to every nation, kindred, tongue and people. How could you do it if you had no love for those people? You would be just a facade. And surely it is time for us to rise up and take that message to the world. Oh, God bless you here in England as you do that. This country is a challenge and a half to get the message just around here. I mean, we have so many more advantages in Australia, much smaller population, a much bigger percentage of Seventh-day Adventists, and we've done an appalling job at getting the message to all those only 18 million citizens in Australia, virtually all speaking the one language with very easy communication, as you have here uh, in this country. And we still haven't got it to every citizen of that very simple country to get the message to. But God is raising us up for that last day. And I believe that we should be praying as never before for the latter rain. But remember, in order to get the latter rain, we must first have the character of Christ. Don't bother to pray for the latter rain unless you have asked God to give you his character. For you're wasting your time, and I would be wasting my time to do that. But yield ourselves to Christ and then pray. Give us the rain in the time of the latter rain. You know that text. Lord, please send us the rain in the time of the latter rain. Let us bow and pray. Lord, we pray that thou wilt give us a desire to reflect thy character. This we need more than anything else. And Lord, we pray that thou wilt be with us and bless us and guide us and help us in every way to be thy willing children, children of the King of Kings. What a privilege. So undeserved, but so greatly desired. Lord, may this be the reward that in thy love and kindness thou dost bestow upon us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.